Welcome, everybody. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news, all related to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. To participate in today's program, our guest call-in line is 646-716-4972. Now, here's your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. Let's begin. Welcome, everybody. So good to have you here with us. Let's push up the volume here. I'm working with my new soundboard. Got this new Rode Podcaster Pro. Love this thing. So hopefully it's coming through to you all loud and clear. Good to have you with us again. It is September 7th. It is Labor Day. So good to have you dialing in, listening. Uh, we got several people dialing in. Amazing. And listening in on a streaming basis. So grateful. Most of you will listen to this on a downloaded basis, which is a great way to do it. You can go to Lickin' On Lending, the website, or go listen to it on Blog Talk Radio on a downloaded basis. But today, podcast, there's a couple of interesting surprises I have for you. I have a special guest that will be joining me. His name is CJ DeSantis. I'll tell you more about it when I introduce him to you. And he sent me an article, Reversing Financialization in a Post-COVID-19 World. Really interesting article. It's published by the Advisor's Perspective. He had sent it over to me, and I then read it. I go, wow, this is really good. And then I sent it around to a bunch of my friends, had them read it, and they go, oh, this is a wow, kind of one of those wow articles. And I like it because it was written on August 24, 2020 is when the article was written and published. And advisor's perspective. So I've invited C.J. DeSantis in, who sent this article to me, to join me a little bit into the podcast to discuss it. And I can't wait to share it with you. By the way, you'll find a link to this article in our show notes, both on the Blog Talk Radio website, as well on our write-up in our website. Again, this podcast is created by mortgage professionals. It is for mortgage professionals. We're grateful to have you as our listener. Our commitment is to bring you timely information in an audio format that you can listen to anytime, anywhere. Someone just texted me, says, I thought you were going to run through some your past look backs on some of your podcasts. I'm going to weave that in here. Definitely will be doing that. I think there are some special things I want to call your attention to. And then also in the hot topic segment, we're going to be playing the recent Ainsworth Advisors, a monthly call. It's very interesting. It's an interview again, Ainsworth Advisors, one of our sponsors. It's one of the companies I own. What we do is we bring the board of advisors together once a month and we have them share their thoughts on what's going on in the market. So in the hot topic segment, you're going to listen to our newest member of the Ainsworth Advisors is Gwen Muse Evans, one of my favorite new people. I just love Gwen. We met several years ago in the Washington, D.C. area. We actually met in Florida speaking out. She was a panelist on one of the panels I was moderating for the MBA, and it was really interesting. And she walked up to me afterwards. She says, you are going to become my new best friend. And we have been best friends ever since. So I'm really looking forward to having you listen to her comments. And then Joe Murin makes some really interesting comments about what's going on with Jenny May. Why and, and a perspective of what is happening with the FHFA increase of 50 bips on the pricing for refinances and what's behind that. And he brings out industry's perspective. So you're going to want to stay tuned to the Hot Topic segment and listen to all the commentary. We've talked about a lot of issues, but that one was first and foremost. We'll be recording another one here, I believe this week or next week will be for September and we'll go through that. Anyway, I want to say we're so pleased to be a part of the Industry Syndicate. You can check out all the podcasts that are on the Industry Syndicate. Check 
it out at industrysyndicate.com. Also, we're thrilled to be part of the mortgagemedia.com. Check out what is going on over there. Dave Matthews and I have a Dave and Dave. Maybe it should be Dave versus Dave, but it's Dave and Dave. We're good friends, but we see the world sometimes so differently, at least politically. So it's really gets some interesting content that comes out there. So anyway, uh, special attention to both of those syndications of our podcast. So also I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors, the Mortgage Bankers Association of America. I always say check out the Mortgage Action Alliance application on your cell phone to have your voice heard in Washington, D.C. And it's never been more important to do that. Also, the NASTRA, the mortgage bot solution automatically addresses compliance issues as well delivering enhanced borrower satisfaction and increased productivity as well as, uh, by the way, we had them as a guest last week. If you listen to that podcast, that's getting a lot of downloads and listens. Also, we're part of two co-ops, Lenders One, as well as the Mortgage Collaborative. Both of these co-ops create competitive advantages for lender and vendor members. Also, we're members of the Community Mortgage Lenders of America. We're going to have, really excited to have an upcoming guest. Michael will be coming back on. He is the current president of CMLA, and we'll have him coming up on a, a podcast here in just a few weeks. Also, Indicom, we had them on recently as a guest. I think that was that was actually last week. It was Finastro was the week before. And we had Linda Bomar uh, on there and talking with another one of the execs talking about artificial intelligence, RPA, real interesting conversation. Be sure to check out that podcast as well as Josh from Incelerate. Great to have him as a partner. Check out how you can engage borrowers more effectively with this really unique tool, Incelerate. And they just launched their new mobile app. I have my clients looking at it. Also, Ainsworth Advisors, sponsor of the podcast. So also going to be in the Hot Topic segment, as well as AI Assist, which is artificial intelligence and reaching borrowers, celebrity home loans. If you're looking for a place to aggregate up your company or your efforts, your production with, go check out Celebrity Home Loans, Knowledge Scoop, Mobility RE, and Modic. But be sure to check out all of our sponsors at our Lickin' on Lending website. Hey, why aren't you going through all of them? Sometimes I go on on and on about these. I love them. And I, but I think you are dialed in to listen to what we're talking about and what we have on the topic. So I encourage you, please check out the sponsors. They're really some great stuff. Sometimes we have them on and I select our sponsors. For example, Velma does one of the best job, one of the most simple solutions to getting your messaging out. Does it email? email. They also have, which is still very effective, also mail, that mail response rates are still the highest that they've been at. So check out Velma. Also, VendorSurf is a great way to find all the vendors that are out there. Vidyard, I love Vidyard. I'm using it all the time to communicate with my clients on specific things. Great for screen sharing. All of our regulars are not here with us. They're enjoying Labor Day, but a special thank you goes out to Alice, Andy, Alan, and Matt for their contributions each week. But let's run over to Les Parker and get this week's TM Spotlight update. Les? And if we can't refinance our home, it just wouldn't be fair. Because precious and few are the load that we all share. TM Spotlight Soundbites is brought to you by Power Seller, making hedging easy. Will everyone get their home refinanced? Will uncertainty drive rates up or down? What is the impact of de-urbanization and de-globalization? With a new car, Americans are moving out of the city to the burbs. The worst is still to come to downtown office buildings. The V recovery is still short of 100%. So struggles remain. Friends help friends refinance. Because precious and few are the low rates that we all share. These views are my own. Go to tmspotlight.com to subscribe to my daily newsletter. 
Yeah, good job, Russ Parker and Gary Cantabone. I love how you guys do that. Great job. Mixing in the message and in with some music. I uh, love those two guys. Love the quality that they bring to the podcast. All of the regulars, as I said a moment ago, are enjoying their Labor Day. But I have invited someone really special, a dear friend that I met many years ago, to the podcast. His name is CJ DeSantis. We had him on one other time, maybe a couple of times. We had him on certainly one when we did a 9-11 tribute. And he talked about his experience on a subway as just about the time as the World Trade Centers fell. One of those defining moments for all of us. We remember where we were, remember what happened. And uh, so welcome to the microphone, CJ DeSantis. CJ, so good to have you here, my friend. Dave, thanks for having me on again. This is especially <laughs> to all of your listeners. And he's a victim of my spontaneous nature, folks. I was reading this article and I was reading it again. I was going back to it. There's so much in this article, CJ, and I want to get into that in a minute. But for those, let's just teach our listeners to go back and listen to that podcast. Because remember, you talked in very great detail. You're such a great storyteller. Anyway, and you talked about what you experienced on 9-11. Do you remember that podcast we did? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's uh, hard to believe that uh, 9-11 is, I guess, we're in the month of September, so it'll be 19 huh? years. And I was an investment banker working in downtown Manhattan, right at the uh, tip of the island. I had a beautiful uh, office looking out over the Statue of Liberty, and uh, I lived out in the suburbs. I'd come in by train into Grand Central, and I'd gone to a, a morning prayer meeting, to, to be exact, and uh, jumped on the train as I did every morning to go to my offices downtown, but it turned out it was that uh, Tuesday morning, September 11th, 2001, and uh, I find myself on New York City's one of the most traveled subways, took it downtown, had to bypass the World Trade Center stop. We didn't fully understand why. And when I got out at the tip of the island, a place called Bowling Green on the Lex, known as the yeah. 4, 5, and 6 Green Line, as I stepped out, I was looking up at a beautiful fall day, nip in the air. A cold front had come through. There wasn't a cloud in the sky, so it was an intense blue. I looked up at those big World Trade Centers where I had been working since 1985, so I'd been there 15 years, and flames were bursting out of both of them. And I had been there when the World Trade Center had been attacked earlier, and the bombs had gone off in the basement. So I'd thought about terrorism and being in the, on the island, and yeah. That's, yeah, that's the last time we spoke. I can tell you, we want to go back and listen to that. We went through that in uh, detail. It was quite a day. Yeah, great. yeah that, that was quite a day. I encourage you. Maybe we'll uh, have, have that one teed up on and around uh, September 11th because it was such a great description. But today, you're here because you forwarded me, as you do so many really thoughtful articles. And this one is reversing financialization in the post-COVID-19 world. And CJ, I love all the articles you send. There's so much thought-provoking. I love some of the humor you send over to it. You, you just have a great sense of humor. But this one is an advisor's perspective. So before we go there, I want to talk, How since you left Wall Street and started your entrepreneurial career, which is, uh, would, we could spend a whole, line, a whole lot of time talking about that and what you're doing. We'll get that at the end. But tell me, how do you aggregate and look at all the information, all the great news articles and uh, advisors' perspective. Why? And how did this article leave out? <clears throat> oh, I, I appreciate asking. Like everybody, the world is changing. And it's been changing for quite some time because of technology. And we won't go into it, but we certainly have seen this sea change in media. And in the day, I think when I started my career as an investment banker, 
All you had to do is have the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times delivered to your door, read that on your hour train ride in. And by the time you got to the office, you were pretty much up on what was going on. Uh, Bloomberg and Instantaneous News and the Internet and those little AOL CDs really hadn't started happening in, in 1985. Now fast forward to the year 2020 and the world's been incredibly democratized. The, the issue is there's too much information. Uh, I remember the analogy of, of someone talking about the privilege of walking into the library of Congress, but it's all just scattered and everything's on the floor. There's no card catalog or, or way to organize it. So all your listeners, I've begun to seek out and find aggregators. Began with Drudge, but this particular website that you're going to link uh, to is a free service and it's a, an industry forum for the professionals who are primarily financial consultants and financial advisors to small institutions and individuals. So if you are a um, stockbroker, if we call them that anymore, I guess we call them financial consultants, financial advisors, this is a place where the independent can go and get good research, white papers. Some of it is produced by the industry, a lot of it from the insurance companies, and uh, they send an email every day and they send links, click on it, and there's a host of stories and they tell you who their sponsors are. And uh, like every good writer, everyone's trying to build their brand. Everyone's trying to get you the you know link to their website. Everyone's trying to advertise and get you to come join our or invest in their money management platform or they have a product to sell. But along the way, you can piece through it. And I found this article there and you'll link to it on your uh, yeah. website, but it's a, f a free service that I, I recommend to anyone who is associated with the, the financial markets from an individual investor point of view. So interesting. I always like uh, going out and looking at it, but there's so much, like you said, it's like going walking into the Library of Congress after a, a tornado went through it because everything's laying around the floor. Where, where do you, what do you pick up and read and what do you look at? So I like going to really smart people like yourself and uh, find out what they're reading. And uh, it sure has worked out real well. I appreciate you sending this over. This article, getting written on August 24th, John Balder. And uh, I really like that. What drew you specifically to this article? What, what was it that was it your economic training, which I think is so fascinating? Yeah, I think I am asking the questions that many of your listeners are, are probably asking that with that old adage, it's different this time. How many times have I heard it's different this time? And I always fall <laughs> back on the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, nothing new under the sun. It's not different this time. And yet, David, I think it could be different this time. And I think all of your uh, listeners Sorry. and your clients are, are feeling the anxiety that I am, which is I'm older and wiser. I've been through a lot. I'm not investing in Robinhood. I'm not just day trading out of boredom. I was there on uh, Wall Street when what he calls financialization. I was a, a, a young, trained lawyer, MBA with an economics degree from Vanderbilt. And I arrived on Wall Street as an investment banker and I ended up in the mortgage securitization business. And I was there when Wall Street was really coming of its own. It was 1984. It was Reagan. It was Volcker wrenching inflation out of the system where we had unusually high interest rates. And we had the thrift crisis, the precursors of the RTC, Ronald Reagan's uh, Tax Recovery Act that had just devastated the commercial real estate. And the reason this article intrigued me was when I came to Wall Street, I believed all that stuff I read in my intro, Paul Samuelson's 10th edition economic textbook, Supply and Demand, Keynesian yep. Theory, Marginal Utility, Law of Diminishing Returns. And I was always looking, and there was always, there's always been debate. At the time, I remember every Thursday, everyone waited around because we were waiting for the money supply. Back then, the monitors mm -hmm. and Milton Friedman out of the University of Chicago. Huh? And there was a big debate between 
the people that believed in fiscal theory, that the government through aggregate supply and demand, and the interplay between that and the money supply. And everyone hung on every uh, on that number because if the money supply was going up, Milton Friedman said inflation was going to follow. But what happened was, you know, now we, when's the last time you heard anyone even mention the money supply? Um, and I can talk about popular economic theories. And I guess the reason this article jumped out at me is like the idea when I first heard about m- modern monetary theory or known as MMT, where someone just gets up and goes, everything you've been told is wrong. All the fundamental mm-hmm. paradigms, all the worldview that we're making incredibly important policy decisions, things that will impact our lives, our children's lives, our retirements, our net worth, our role as a a country in society and the world depend on these ideas. And I guess I'm amazed at the difference of opinion, whether it be Paul Krugman writing for the New York Times or others who stood up and said, you're not thinking about this the right way. The data you've interpreted, you saw through your worldview and you came to conclusions you wanted to know. Here is a different way of thinking about things. And I thought this article was a bit of a shock and awe moment where someone did that same thing. They said, quit thinking about things in the standard way. Here's another way to think about things. And that's what jumped out of me. And I thought you yeah. enjoyed it. It looks like it hit a nerve with you oh, too. Not only did I enjoy it, I've gone back and read it and I keep looking for it because I'm an advisor. I advise companies and independent mortgage bankers, wealthy individuals on how should they manage their business. And I, I long for these kind of articles. I want to start by talking about financialization. What does he mean by financialization? I, I think it's a word I actually am unfamiliar with. I think it's just coined, and God bless him, the word financial engineering. That's okay. a very disparaging yeah. term that I think people have correctly thrown at Wall Street. My dad, for example, who was an industrialist, he made yeah. jet engines. He resented tremendously that I showed up on Wall Street with my fancy <laughs> suit and my suspenders and my Mont Blanc pen in my top pocket. He oh, yeah. resented what he, you know, what he called the thieves and money changers. Changers. He wanted the people that were out there in the manufacturing making widgets and, and making things that made this country great. And the people that just pushed paper and created leverage, not only were they not productive and not only were they taking our best and brightest and instead of having them designing uh, the next rocket ship or inventing the computer, instead they were just pushing paper around Robin yeah. Peter to pay Paul. So I think right. this word is another word for financial engineering, which is using uh, Wall Street and its many uh, creatures because it's creating things, you know, who ever heard of a credit default swap and separate from futures and options and futures on options and the leverage on top of leverage. So I think the financialization is another word for financial engineering. And he highlights a half dozen of them. He mentions, I think the other part of the article that he meant about financialization is the interplay between the government and the private sector. And if nothing hits at the core of an economist, right? Even day one, chapter one for a first year student in Econ 101 is this kind of the public markets and the private market, the role of the government, guns and butter. And so I think financialization is his way of saying that the government has continually encroached and taken over more and more of the aggregate supply and demand curves at the expense and maybe to the detriment of the private economy because of all the themes he develops. uh, I'm not a big fan of these. One is the ever-increasing issue of wealth disparity. He spends a lot of time talking about Mm that the rich are getting richer at the expense of the poor working class. And there's a lot of us. We, we call it the 
maybe it's more than 90-10 or 80-92-8. So in the context of the have and the have-nots, he argues that the government is embarking on a series of policies that are bad for the people that produce and for the 90% of us and accrue to the benefit of the haves. And that is a recipe for disaster. We've had a chance to fix it when we saw this blow the first time in the form of what he calls the Great Recession back when Lehman failed in 2008 and 10. And he goes on from there to say, that was a chance to fix it, and we only made it worse. So interesting. Yeah, we only made it worse. This paragraph starts out with the Great Depression is the closest analog to an extraordinary dislocation currently unfolding in the U.S. economy. That's probably the one sentence that just leaped out at me, that with COVID-19, which is there in almost every article, it seems like some relation. But it talks about what is unfolding. Talk a little bit about this. I I want to entice people to read this article because it's so well-written and it brings out so many perspectives. So build on that. Could we be seeing the Great Depression? You and I both are men of faith. We both believe that our best days are ahead. We all uh, want to make make America great again. I want to wear that hat and I believe in it. The vast majority, the silent majority is huge. And I believe this is a very significant election, more so than anything else we've ever had. And it's going to define our future. But the government has been playing with the levers. And I get concerned about that. What's your perspective? You made a couple points. Every American has got to be asking in an age of Corona, if they had anywhere near uh, a stock in their 401k, their IRA, dabbling in their personal account, it had to be a shock to the system. The last time we saw this was when Lehman failed in that 8, 9, 10 great recession. And we saw, depending on what index you use from top to bottom, you could have lost 50% of your net worth. You work, you go and you start saving like you're supposed to at 21, 28, 35. And then you all of a sudden, you look at your statement from whatever uh, wirehouse you're dealing with. And one day you're worth X. And the next month you look at it and you're worth 50% of X, 40% less, 30%, 30, depending on what you're invested in. So when he analogizes to the Great Depression, that's what happened during the Depression. We can talk about what caused it, but ultimately, what were the things? People's net worth fell because they owned either financial assets, stocks and bonds, their home, right? And a point made in this article, and the reason your listeners would be interested in is the housing stock is still a major way that wealth is earned, created, maintained. Uh, here in the United States. And the coronavirus threw 40 million Americans out of work. The stock market indeed, depending on what index you play with, from top to bottom, 50%. Now, the reason I think your listeners and I found this article so intriguing is you have to ask yourself, yes, things are getting better. And I don't subscribe to your theory, David. I think uh, I want to talk to your people that are irrespective of their politics. When we're Mm -hmm. talking about their financial health, they just want right answers. And without politicizing it, the question they have to ask is, someone going to win and what will be the implications for their jobs, their families, and their businesses. And, and they could be very profound uh, depending on who wins. So the purpose of this article and your question is, Corona was a shock to the system as dramatic as the Great Recession of Lehman's failure. And it takes us back to the depression because even during the, the, the Lehman failure, America, it was a financial crisis that hit Wall Street. And yes, the housing stock took it in the shorts. Every pizza parlor and every uh, small business wasn't at risk the way it is today. So his analogy to why this is important is the closest thing is the depression because here we are looking at joblessness, out of work, people not putting food on the table, people seeing businesses, restaurants, bars, bodegas, just the old adage of Hoover, the business of America is business. 
the analogy mm-hmm. to this could look like the depression, whether it be a V or, or whatever. He goes on to say that if this is like the, the Great Depression, what do we learn from the Great Depression? And here's the point. The reason this article stuck out to me is the government is making it worse. The tool, you use the word tools and levers. So the question on the table is, is it different this time? Can the government continue to spend and treat this like World War II, which is print money in order to keep people at work to maintain aggregate demand through government levers? Or the other side of the story, which is we just don't have that much money. You can't keep printing 2.3 trillion with a T with more behind it because at some point you have to pay it back. This article raises the question, like modern monetary theory, don't believe it. This old canard that what's good for the individual, balance Mm -hmm. your checkbook, live within your means. He says what is applicable to the individual is not relevant and applicable to the economy as a whole. And the role of the government here is to stand in the breach, keep people employed. They don't even need to run the printing presses. It's right. It's now all electronic. His argument is the government's approach in the past has not been correct. They created a lot of these problems. And the ultimate problems are we disserve the poor. We disserve the 90% worker whose standard of living has not increased. And we're doing it at the expense of the 1% who have gotten richer. And that has got to stop. And we need to go back to policies that benefit the great deplorables and not continue to reward financial. And and the end of the story is he believes that we really have to go back and do things we could have done, which is bring back regulation, the separation of investment banking from commercial banks, Glass-Steagall, regulation two, regulated interest rates, not let corporations buy their their stock back. Those are not things that uh, I'm a free markets, a caveat emptor kind of guy, except when you look around and you look at what's happening, it's not working. We cheat. The government writes a put and a true caveat emptor would be let the stock market stay down 50% and dig its way out of the hole. Don't have the government come in and buy muni bonds and corporate bonds and box stop and what we call the uh, the Fed's put. We're now, it, it looks like it's a rigged game. And I found this article intriguing because he raises the issue to all of us free market economists, take the blinders off. Isn't a free market and the role of the government is cooking the books and we're doing so at our own peril. That's what I thought was so intriguing about the article. Yeah, that's a great way to just leave this one to encourage people to go in there and read the article. It is so well-written. It's thought-provoking. It doesn't take you to a political place. It takes you to a thoughtful place of what do we need to do? The part that I love the best is that we do need to bring this equality back in and without bringing in socialism. Man, I'm getting a lot of comments. First of all, one guy comments says, who is this guy that you have as your guest? Where did he come from? And I love his perspective. Please have him so another one perspective. Great article. Just started reading it as you're talking. I'm going to be reading it. I love listening to how he talks. So we've got some obviously Vanderbilt you know, alumni here. But uh, one of the things that was intriguing is at Vanderbilt, they made you take some, some electives, but it was outside of your major, if I recall correctly. And you, you ended up taking some economic courses. And what you learned about it was really a much broader study. To share those thoughts that you shared with me earlier today with our listening audience. I, I certainly would, would want to put a plug in for my uh, alma mater. I met my wife there. So she was an undergraduate and we loved it so much. We stayed on and she got a law degree. I got a law degree. I got an MBA degree. So we have no shortage of sheepskin on our wall, probably the most expensive wallpaper in America or our training. 
But the reason I chose Vanderbilt was everyone asked, of course, when you're choosing a school, what are you interested in? And quite honestly, I didn't know what I was interested in. I was looking at college as just something you went to like 13th grade. But what stuck out for me at Vanderbilt, and I still really encourage this in terms of the concept of the liberal arts education, no matter what you studied to get your degree, to get a standard BA, you had to take seven areas of expertise. You couldn't graduate unless you took two courses in English, two courses in history, two courses in math, starting with calculus at the lowest level, two courses in a foreign language, two courses in uh, social sciences. And they took you across these seven areas. And no matter what you're doing, pre-med, pre-law, we were your political science major, comparative literature major, English major, they forced you to diversify and get some kind of breadth instead of just spending all your time doing whatever you loved or whatever you were to be trained, believing that um, a well-diversified, broad educational exposure made better thinkers. And uh, I thought it was a great idea then. I, I believe the school still mm -hmm. continues that tradition. And I, I do believe in liberal arts, even if you're a gearhead, even if you like the sciences, being forced to read Madame Bovary or things that just could kill you, ultimately make you a better person. And then, of course, they give you an out. Of the seven, there's one you could just cross off your list. You say, I just can't do it, whatever. So I, I, I really recommend it and found that even though I went on and got an economics degree, I was forced to take these other courses. It was along the way there that I was able to read that first economic textbook and I knew it was for me. I read it and I was just wrapped. It was a page turner. It gave me ideas and allowed me to think about things and gave me tools of things I'd always thought about. And um, I really, for people who don't know what they want to do, the ability to um, explore different areas, you'll find the things you like or that it'll find you. So that's what happened to me down at Vanderbilt and I recommend it to everybody. Or to the parents uh, who are raising children, trying to direct them. This is a way to think about it. Great way to think about it. Great commentary. The last comment, I guess this is, does CJ have his own podcast I want to sub subscribe I don't think he does folks but uh, we may we'll get him back here on a regular basis CJ man lit up my switchboard here today I love it appreciate it thank you so much it's my pleasure uh, Dave uh, no I do not have my uh, own podcast I, I read for my own account and for the benefit of I guess if we say on Wall Street I talk my own book I am like I think many of your listeners entrepreneurial interested in the good of this country interested in the good of my family and I'm asking the hard questions what is good social policy what is the right thing to do and how can reasonable minds differ and how can we approach this because I think everyone has the same goals. We just disagree on how to get there. And I thought this article laid out some thoughts that no matter your political persuasion was food for thought and ways to think about so we can come to personal decisions about where to put our money and our time and our resources. And then ultimately as a country, decisions we can make from a policy perspective, what is the right, quote, best thing to do for the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And that's why I'm glad you enjoyed the article and I recommend it to your, your listeners. And I don't have a podcast, but uh, would love to come back on anytime you'd like to talk more. Oh, one of my good friends, I think I know who's behind this text. He says, Lickin, I'm going to start spreading ugly rumors about you if you do not have him come back on. Especially love to get his perspective on politics and economics and how the two uh, intertwine. And so well, you're going to be back, CJ. This has been excellent. Thank you so much for taking time on a spur of the moment request this morning to jump on the podcast to talk about this article. Thank you so much. And thanks for sending it out to me. Folks, we'll have this article posted in our show notes, C.J. DeSantis has been our guest. C.J., thank you. Appreciate you, friend. Pleasure is all mine. My love to uh, Nancy. And I look forward to speaking with you and your listeners again soon. You bet. It's an honor. Thank you. It's so much fun to hang with really fun people, folks. You get people that are great thinkers. And I 
think there's so much great thought out there. And I don't know about you, but I have trouble sorting through it. So I get around people that I enjoy listening, which is this podcast. This podcast is about getting people I enjoy being around, listening to, bringing them here. And uh, a lot of people say, we'd love to hear you share more of your thoughts and opinions, Dave. And I probably don't do enough of that. It's something I'm planning to do more. I'm looking at several ways in which to do that. But this podcast, even though it has my name in it, Licking and Lending, is not about me. It's about you, the listener. It's bringing you articles like this, bringing you guests like this that will hopefully strike your thinking, cause you to grow. And that's what I'm doing as I host this podcast each and every week. Thanks so much for being here with us in the first part of this program. Hope you have a great rest of the day and look forward to having you back here again next week. Have a blessed week, everybody. You've been listening to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin' of Transformational Mortgage Solutions. Join us next week, and thanks for listening.